Welcome to 100 Ways, your simple reminder that you are home wherever you are and that everything is right the way it is right now. I'm your host, Laura Christine, fellow explorer of consciousness and this amazing, beautiful world. Let's get curious, dive into the duh, and find out what's here for us today. Welcome to 100 Ways. This is your daily exploration of self and soul. I'm your host and fellow explorer, Laura Christine. Let's dive in and find our way home. I'm just going to let Ethan take over as host here. It's actually quite nice. I could use the break. I do do this every single day. We're reconvening, recording this podcast on day two here and I believe where we left off was leaving Varanasi after the miserable encounter with the uh, broken toe in the funeral pyre sludge area. Pretty soon after that, realizing that, all right, <laughs> not for that reason, but sort of generally the sentiment that I'd had was that I should continue on, that this idea of performing meditation either was a bad idea entirely or was just a bad idea in Varanasi, and I wasn't sure which but the next city that I wanted to go to was Bodh Gaya. So I put on my backpack and started walking away from Varanasi with my thumb up, as I had learned was incredibly successful. Like in India, if you're a foreigner who looks like they're just kind of traveling around, it's usually very easy to put your thumb up and get a ride almost immediately because there's just this tremendous friendliness and people want to practice their English and they want to figure out who you are and Maybe you can do something for them, you know, or they can do something for you. So I ended up getting a ride with a guy in a tuk-tuk who was going long distance, which is pretty atypical. We took some pictures together. He was pretty shy, ultimately, and so we didn't really talk that much. But he had to drop me off at the outskirts of Bodh Gaya. In general, my plan for hitchhiking in India was pretend as if you're just going to walk the entire way there and be ready to sleep on the side of the road. Default case, it's like going to be okay, and then usually you'll get picked up anyway. In this case, nobody picked me up because it was night was falling, and so I had, I don't know, it wasn't very far, like six miles or something to walk, and I walked into the city and found a place to stay and went to sleep. Really, what brings people to Bodh Gaya is this idea that this was a really significant place in the Buddha attaining enlightenment. I forget the name of the monument, but there's this main monument in Bodh Gaya. It's probably called like the Bodh Gaya Monument or something like that. But anyway, it's this very tall, very beautiful ornamented building that the, was it the king of Thailand donated this like massive hunk of gold to sit on the top of it because gold in Thailand is very closely related to adoration of and respect for the Buddha. So what better than a big chunk of gold to put on the top of this very significant monument? When I was there meditating, I kept on looking at that chunk of gold and thinking, how easy would this be to steal in the middle of the night or just to cut off a piece from it? Because it seems relatively unguarded. <laughs> Maybe that's even part of the value of it being there is to <laughs> provide uh, material for impure thoughts to emerge. But anyway, there's this temple and it's this walled garden and inside is actually a very critical and sacred site on many Buddhist pilgrimages. So people who are practicing monks and normal people who aren't monks visit this place because there's a tremendous amount of 
energy. And there's also this practice of doing prostrations where you do a thousand prostrations or 10,000 prostrations and you can do them all in one sitting or you can do them progressively over time, sort of accumulating them. But in general, you set up your pad and you bow down and you say aspirations and you recite a mantra and you sort of reify this belief in the virtuosity of the path, like the correctness of the decision to pursue meditation as a means to removing obscuration and attaining enlightenment. And that kind of physical willingness to walk the walk or bow the bow is something that I really respect and sort of part of the whole reason that I was turned on by this idea of austerities. Is can you prove to yourself physically that you're doing something spiritually that's worthy? Can you spend the time that you would otherwise spend doing other things and dedicate it entirely to this goal? I spent about a, I don't know, five days in Bodh Gaya, and I had a few different experiences there. The first one was that I met a very young monk who was maybe 11. I believe he was from Thailand. There were these really big groups of, like, monks on buses, you know, <laughs> like, you know, tour monks. And there would be these sort of factions at the temple, you know, where there would be, like, here are the hundred people from Taiwan, and they're all speaking in Taiwanese, and they're sort of doing their Taiwanese thing. And then here are the people from Thailand, and here are the people from China, and here are the hippies. <laughs> they didn't organize, though. They would wander around. And here are the Indians. But this monk, I never met his group. We walked around together and shared a profound connection. He met me and he asked what I was doing there. And I told him that I was there because I wanted to learn more about the Buddha and about Buddhism and about myself. And he immediately granted me this incredible kindness and brotherhood where he treated me with such great respect and friendship and he also had a degree of intentionality and organization that struck me as kind of like older than his age, where he said, all right, how about we meet tomorrow at 6.30 at the temple, and then we can go walking together. And I said, all right. And usually when I meet people in India, I'd never see them again, but this is great. I'll totally see you there. And so I saw him the next morning, and we walked around together and looked at temples and shared our feelings, and mostly just sort of basked in this kind of brotherhood or sisterhood or sort of personhood, this kind of kinship of here we are together, that we found ourselves in this place. The miracle of time has led us into this moment, and we're both searching for something. And isn't that worthy of helping each other out? I think we both sort of got tired out. We went on a couple organized tours, and those are generally very tiring. And so <laughs> we sort of got tired out and said our goodbyes and never saw each other again. <laughs> but there's something lingering for me, and I hope for him, of just, uh, wow, you know, sometimes like when you're making friends in a city or something, you're not sure if you like are worthy of being their friend. Like, oh, I'm, I'm making music or like I'm making art. And the first question is like, well, what kind of art are you making? <laughs> you know, am I going to hang out with you or not? Because are you good? You know? <laughs> and um, in this case, there was nothing like that. Can I say something? Yeah. In the short time that we've known each other, here's what my thought was when you said this 11-year-old instantly sort of felt something with you, a connection. I feel... Like, maybe it's because he could sense your sincerity, which I have sensed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank that, you're, you. that you have a 
a very um i don't really know how to qualify sincerity but there's super sincere you're super sincere <laughs> and that is something that not everybody i think embodies well i'm gratified to hear that yeah maybe that is part of it i think that there's always sort of got to be like a spark or kind of a grace of the moment that leads to walking around temples together. <laughs> and my second is one that I've sort of stewed about and sort of scratched my head about. I'm not sure how to tell the story. I think I'll start with what happened and then sort of pontificate about it, which I was about to do. So right at the base of the temple, there's this almost maze-like, very close quarters, tall walls, and it's made more maze like by the flow of tourists and meditators who are walking around. You're always supposed to walk clockwise around Buddhist monuments. It's considered to be the way that you attain good merit. And it's like rubbing a cat backwards. You could do that, but generally it would be considered to be in bad form. So I was walking clockwise around this temple, and I believe this was the first time that I... It was, in fact, the first time that I had visited the temple. And I was feeling kind of alone or sort of like, well, what the hell is even going on here? It's another temple. How can I find a place to be? There was this lovely pond or sort of pool with all of these quotes from different Buddhist masters around the world and this sort of lovely walk of aspirations. And so I was enjoying that. I got to about the um, 10 o'clock position on the temple and uh, just sat there. But at one point, there were these two monks wearing orange. They both approached me, and one of them stepped back. The man that approached me was old-ish. He was maybe 75. Uh, Didn't have much hair, though he did have some hair, sort of like a stubble that he had shaved. But he was sort of like a monk that was not streamlined, but had clearly had a lot of experience under his belt. There was sort of like an aura or a vibe to him, and I thought, oh, great, I'm going to have a conversation with this person And that's very exciting. After a couple pleasantries were exchanged in somewhat broken English, he presented me two objects and asked that I choose between them. One of them was an entry ticket to the temple, but just a receipt. It wasn't the actual ticket. And the other was a leaf from a tree called the Bodhi tree. And it was a lovely pressed leaf. It hadn't fully dried yet. He presented these two objects to me, and I thought, what the hell is he offering me this receipt for? (laughs) This is the first thing I thought. I was like, well, what is this? Does he want money or something? And so I I said, I will have the Bodhi leaf because I didn't have a Bodhi tree leaf at that point. And immediately upon choosing, there was a, a palpable disillusionment and sadness that came over his entire demeanor. And he gave me the Bodhi leaf and he left. And that was it. So I had my dumb Bodhi leaf there. I said, oh, clearly I should have chosen the other thing. But then again, I chose exactly what felt right to me. And so I had passed the test, but not succeeded in passing it the way that he wanted me to, I suppose. Or maybe I failed. (laughs) But I still have this leaf. I just found it the other day looking through my journal. So this is interesting because part of the tradition of Buddhist mastery and training and the transference of great insight over many generations, longer periods of time than pure understanding can be reliably transmitted by words alone, although that is one of the most sacred means of transmitting pure wisdom. 
is this sort of process of maintaining lineages of meditation masters, Rinpoche, illuminated individuals who have attained a certain degree of enlightenment. And the idea is that they pass into death levitating above their meditation cushions and then their bodies either disappear or never decompose. And then somewhere at some point, the next child is born and the search begins to find that child. This is true of the Dalai Lama, for instance. This is something that I think is actually pretty well known in popular culture at this point. But in general, the practice is that you try to subtly encounter this spirit and the soul of this child and give it subtle cues about whether, in fact, it is a reincarnated master. And so I am clearly not a reincarnated master because I chose this leaf. (laughs) But it was this sort of special moment nonetheless. I didn't feel anything other than fascination or delight even about this having happened at all. I probably would have taken the leaf. You would have taken the leaf too? Yeah, well, clearly. I mean, I don't know, but... (laughs) Well, who wants it? I already had a receipt to this place. But when I was retelling that, I was like, oh, I get it, man. This sort of enshrinement of entrance into a sacred place is sort of to choose that is to transcend it. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Maybe, know. but a leaf is nature. Yeah. You don't need to go into a temple. We got one. I was like, it's if this right like outside. super chill like meditation dude is going to offer me two things, I'm going to take this thing, which is most beautiful. So there you have it. So the third story <laughs> from, from my time in Bodh Gaya. Early on in my time there, I once again was attempting to rent a motorcycle. And I met a guy who said he could rent me a motorcycle. But it kind of turned into this whole sort of protracted thing. And he wanted to charge me like 10 times what I had gotten used to paying, which still wasn't all that expensive. But on principle, you can't pay that rate. But it ended up turning out that the reason he was looking for money so desperately is because his mother was sick. So we spent some time together. And that day he said, well, if you don't want to rent a motorcycle, how about I just give you a ride somewhere and where are you looking to go? And I said, well, I'm looking to go to this cave that everybody's talking about, which is the cave where the Buddha spent some interminable number of years meditating without food or water in this cave. And some stories say that he attained enlightenment there, but I think those are not the stories that I choose to believe. I think it was part of his journey. So I said, yeah, this sounds great. And so I hopped on the back of his motorcycle. It was a lovely ride. We got to the cave, and you walk a short distance up to it, and there it is. And nobody was there, which is surprising, because you would think that the cave where the Buddha attained enlightenment would at least have tickets that you would have to pay for. And beyond that, at least have 100 people waiting at any given moment to get in there, because that's some pretty serious stuff right there. But in any case, maybe it wasn't the real cave. No, but I think it actually was. I think it was the real cave that he brought me to. It had signs saying that it was. So this would be a pretty serious fabrication. So there we were at this cave. And the entrance is so small that you can only crawl in. So we took turns. He went in first and I waited because I wanted to encounter it completely alone. And he came out. I went in and I sat down. And there were a lot of different thoughts that I had. But the general impression that has persevered is the color red and an image of a statue of a Buddha and a kind of altar with bright light emanating from it. As I was sitting there, just sort of this encountering of the question, how long could I spend in this cave without food or water? (laughs) 
there's this question, was the Buddha a real person or was the Buddha a spirit who left traces of bodily happenings? You know, was this a godlike entity or was he or she a man or a woman like we are? I think that there are historical accounts that generally well tend to agree that there was somebody who is typically considered to be the Buddha. But I think that there's a degree of ambiguity in certainly the way that the stories are told. It's like interpreting any important religious text. You have to approach it from the standpoint of metaphor being one of the core aspects of understanding and teaching. Like, if you go at it and you say, oh, well, the Bible says to do this and not that, you have to wonder, ah, maybe this is actually more complicated than I'm saying it is. Maybe it has some kind of significance that has this delicate and subtle interplay with other concepts. At any rate, I was sitting in this cave, and it just felt tremendously peaceful, and I did feel like a person could spend a long time in there, and that a cave like this, where you're not completely closed off to the light, would be a very nice place to meditate, because it's cool, and no lions are going to eat you, and there's sort of a defined space, so you can fully inhabit it and appreciate it and kind of put your little things in various places and have a little home out of it. You know? <laughs> because if you're spending an interminable number of years in a cave, you have to at least have rituals. To go to Bodh Gaya and to have these experiences and to sit in this cave, which was reputed to be the very place where the, the Buddha themselves had sat, was a kind of sacred moment on this trip, which had been full of many things in search of sacred moments. And it felt like, ah, oh, yeah, all right, put that in the bag. There you go. You're never going to forget that. To bring your own body to this sacred place and to just be there and to soak up the vibes and find a connection that spans time and spans limitations felt like, all right, this is part of the reason that I came to India. And now I'm ready to continue on. And so continue on, I did. <laughs> the next place I was headed to was the eastern border of Nepal. To be honest, the whole monk receipt Bodhi leave story is sort of confusing to me. Was the monk disappointed in Ethan? And why? What did he expect? Aren't expectations the killers of joy? Or was he disappointed in himself because he lost the Bodhi leave or something? Like he couldn't just go get another one? I don't understand this monk at all. So I made a story up in my head because I wanted to make some sense of this. And I figure maybe the monks had a bet and the other monk had won the bet because he was betting on Ethan choosing the Bodhi leaf. So the one that lost the bet, who actually brought the choice to Ethan, let it really get to him. And basically, he lost a lot of self-respect. I have no idea. It's very odd. What would you do in that situation? Would you choose anything? Or would you shoo the monk away? <laughs> would you want the receipt or the Bodhi leaf? I'm really curious. What do you think of that? What do you think of this 11-year-old monk? What do you think of the cave? What do you think of the story so far? Until tomorrow when we head with Ethan to the eastern border of Nepal. We are sending all the love and then some more. And we'll talk tomorrow. Thank you for exploring with me today. I would love to continue this conversation with you. We can do that at laurachristine.us. 
You'll find contact in the menu, or you can go to laurachristine.us contact, and you'll be taken right to it. Let's dive in a little deeper and see how fully we can flow with the duh. Thank you for being here. I would love to hear from you. Go to laurachristine.us to let me know your thoughts on this. And remember, as Rumi said, there are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Also, you can't fuck it up. I said that. Mm-hmm.